Good evening. evening. Welcome to Wednesday evening chapel. Uh, We are attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Uh, Just a reminder, uh, when you show up for chapel next week, I'm just making sure that you're paying attention. Turn the lights off because I won't be here. Looking forward to uh, reading and research week. All in favor say aye. Aye. Yeah, me too. I think that's a unanimous vote. We are going to celebrate the Christ whose measure we are trying to attain this evening. Um, We're going to sing some songs that I know you know, and then Dr. King is going to help us us see him in new ways. So would you stand? I want us to sing uh, this song. So what's on your mind? Reading and research week? (laughs) Some assignments maybe? Exegetical papers I hope? Maybe some financial troubles. Taxes are coming due. Car problems. Maybe some relationships. Roommates, spouses, children. Maybe that unsafe neighborhood we live near. Local shootings we hear about in the paper. Those mean and rude neighbors. Our country in crisis, immorality, selfishness, terrorism. How much of our reality is overwhelmed by such stress and fear, anxiety, anger, depression, failure? Perhaps it's time for us to renew our vision. If you would stand with me, take your Bibles, for the reading of God's Word, Revelation chapter 1. I looked back and realized it has been nearly a decade since I have uh, ventured into the New Testament from this chapel pulpit. (laughs) A couple of weeks ago, our New Testament professor ventured into the Old Testament all the way back to Genesis, so I thought Revelation would be appropriate. (laughs) Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and Thyatira, and Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. 
and his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. You may be seated. See, I'm not used to being in the New Testament. I already closed the text. <laughs> it had been a long, hard day, and the old apostle finally had a chance to rest his weary body. He felt that ache in his muscles and soreness burn through his body as he stretched out in an almost dreamlike state, and his mind quickly turned to the past. The last few decades had been filled with more wonder and turmoil than he ever expected for his generation. He had actually witnessed the presence of God's Messiah finally come to Israel. He'd been a part of the close circle of followers who had lived with Jesus the Christ for the three years of his ministry on earth. He had been confused and bewildered and shocked along with the others when their Lord was crucified. And he was witness to the indescribable awe of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. He was part of the birth and growth of the church which carried on Jesus' mission. The miracles, the conversions, the expansion of God's kingdom all took place before his very eyes. And he and the rest of the new Christian movement were anxiously awaiting Christ's return to call believers home to glory in heaven. Suddenly, a sharp pain in his leg brought his thoughts back to reality. His glorious memories were all being threatened by the events of the present day. It seems everything had turned wrong. Persecution and oppression in various forms appeared to be destroying the church. Christians were losing faith and giving up the way of the gospel. The work of Christ appeared to be falling apart. Fear of the present reality struck the Apostle John full in the face. The vision of God's kingdom was fading from the eyes of believers everywhere. This imaginative description of a moment late in the life of the Apostle John reflects a genuine concern for the church. Loss of the vision of God's kingdom is a dangerous threat the work of the Lord. The church was faced with that threat late in the first century, and in many ways the contemporary church is faced with a similar threat now in the 21st century. And as we seek to overcome this concern, it's helpful to recognize some of the reasons for this loss of vision. The crisis for the church at the end of the first century came in the form of persecution and oppression. 
By late in the first century, many of the apostles of Jesus had been killed as martyrs. John may have been the only one left of the original twelve when he was exiled on Patmos, a small island in the Mediterranean where criminals were forced to do hard labor in a rock quarry. At the same time, Christians in Asia Minor were suffering oppression from a variety of sources. Some were being persecuted by those who were stirring up riots and leveling charges against Christians, leading to their arrest, imprisonment, and sometimes death. In addition, the Roman state viewed Christians with suspicion because of these violent disruptions of which they always seemed to be in the center. Further, the emperor himself was known for instigating persecution against Christians and in fact, anyone who did not honor him, Domitian, enforced emperor worship, demanding to be considered as a god, and refusal to be comply was considered treason. Christians who refused to worship the emperor were subject to economic restrictions, loss of property, banishment, imprisonment, and even death. The mission didn't just single out Christians. He was known for a general reign of terror stemming from a warped personality and excessive arrogance. Imagine such a fearsome ruler with a great sword by his side as a constant threat to your well-being. For the church, the result of this persecution was loss of the Christian vision. Pain, anxiety, and fear tended to occupy the minds of believers and exclude all other perceptions. The Christians of the late first century were losing hope and faith in God's glorious realm, which was supposed to be characterized by justice and righteousness and love. It's not hard to see a similar loss of vision in the church today. The circumstances are different than those of the first century, but the church is faced with a similar crisis. There are a number of reasons for the loss of vision in the contemporary church. Events in our modern society can be said to reflect a general reign of terror of their own. Modern times have witnessed two world wars and numerous regional atrocities related to war. Terrorism has replaced communism as this generation's looming threat, still overcast by the shadow of nuclear holocaust. Olive Hurst, Thurston, Columbine, Youth with a Mission, New Life Church still echo in our hearts the unimaginable pain of the death of our young people and our neighbors. We could rehearse numerous examples of violence, occasions of dread related to weapons and drugs and gangs and kidnappings, murders, rapes, and more. I'm confident we're all too familiar with these daily reports in the media concerning which we have become numb. Our vision is also limited by the stresses which so commonly are part of our experience. There's never enough money there are too many demands from work and school, too much strife and tension in our relationships. As a result, we're in debt, we're experiencing heart attacks, far too many of our marriages are falling apart. And our vision is clouded by disillusion. 
Our modern society appeared to hold such great promise at the start. Remember thinking when we reached this 21st century, life would be like it was for the Jetsons. You know, zipping through the air on our cars and robots that served every home. Technology appeared to solve all of our problems and hold such promise. Nuclear power would ward off our enemies and supply to all of our energy demands. Rockets will someday take us to Mars and computers process and produce vast amounts of information for our service. To our dismay, however, nuclear power threatens us with dangerous radiation. And in the hands of terrorists, it's a horrifying threat. A rocket ship sent to Mars not too many years ago was actually lost in space. And tell me honestly, how many times have you pulled out your hair by the roots because of computer malfunctions? Yes, consider these great advantages of our modern technology. You can actually have breakfast in London, lunch in Paris, and luggage in Denver. <laughs> As a result of the disillusionment of our modern world, we're now said to be experiencing postmodern society, and this only increases our need to regain vision in the church. Postmodernism is described as pluralistic and broadly inclusive. In relation to religion, postmodernism embraces every view imaginable. As a result, our country has experienced a resurgence of all kinds of beliefs and practices. For example, a trend has been labeled a type of neo-paganism that has become popular. Not long ago, a news report from San Francisco told of a parent who was protesting to the school board because his elementary age child had been taught basic rituals of witchcraft in the public classroom. People are searching for truth. They're open to everything, including paganism and Eastern mysticism, neo-Nazi practices, and much more. What could be seen as a great opportunity for the evangelistic mission of the church has become a source of confusion and frustration for the faithful. Violence, stress, disillusion, and confusion. Just a few examples of the difficulties which obstruct the vision of the church and its members in the 21st century. When overwhelmed with stress or pain, it's a human tendency to develop tunnel vision. We tend to see the world only in light of our problems, as if our turmoil defines the only reality that exists. We become paralyzed, and we withdraw into the private worlds we have created for our comfort in order to escape the frightening reality that surrounds us. The reality of life which the first century Christians experienced was strife coming from a community around them and the deadly threat of a powerful emperor with that threatening sword by his side. Likewise, reality today is defined by our afflictions and stresses and fears. Like the recipients of the revelation to John, we need to hear a word from God which will expand our vision. The church needs to expand its vision of reality.
One of the ways in which God addresses this need is through the inspiration of a new vision communicated in the book of Revelation. I want to emphasize that the visions in the book of Revelation are not just intended for those at the end of time. These are images directed at every generation which needs to be reminded of the present reality of God's kingdom. Thus, the book of Revelation was just as significant and perhaps more so for the Christians of the first century as it is for the church today or the church at the end of times. Notice how the book is introduced. Verse 4 of chapter 1. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. This is addressed as a communication to seven churches in Asia Minor, not initially to churches in the 21st century. Thus, like the letters of the Apostle Paul, we're privileged to be reading someone else's inspired mail. Also note the words of verse 9 in chapter 1. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John identifies himself as a fellow partaker in the tribulation. He was not referring here to some future end-time tribulation about which we argue whether the rapture will take place before, during, or after. Rather, he's referring to the persecution in the first century which he was experiencing firsthand on this island of Patmos. Thus, God's response presented to the early church from which we too may benefit through the gracious application of the Spirit is a response of a new vision. As I read the introduction of this vision one more time, keep in mind the character of a vision. Visions constitute communications intended to be seen. That's why this Greek word idu appears throughout the book of Revelation. This Greek particle is actually taken from an imperative form of the verb, which means to see. Thus, 26 times in the 21 chapters of Revelation, John writes the command, see, look. It's often translated in our English Bibles with the word behold. It's intended to cause the reader or the listener to look at what is being said. So consequently, as we often say of our children, Revelation is primarily intended to be seen, not heard. An illustration of this irony comes in verse 12 of the first chapter. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. We often become concerned when people talk about hearing voices. But here, John encourages us to see a voice. So as I read the text again, I want you to try to see it. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. 
and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it's been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Allow the vision to have its impact on your mind and heart. Imagine a being dressed in a full robe with a golden sash, with eyes flaming with fire, feet glowing as from a furnace, voice like a mighty ocean, and a large sword between his teeth. This being is so large that he holds seven stars from the galaxies in his right hand. His face shines like the sun blinding your eyes. It's no wonder John passed out as if a dead man. <laughs> Through the communication of this image, John was to expand the vision of reality for the first century church. The people of the early church were surrounded by fear and oppression. The reality that they saw was an emperor who threatened their lives and neighbors who persecuted them. The vision which John received from the Lord, however, testified to a greater reality that also existed in that day. John's inspired words infused the church with a picture of a greater truth than the pain which surrounded them. As the vision sunk deep into the lives of early believers, they were to gain new strength and inspiration. Why should they fear a tiny human emperor with a sword by his side when they served an omnipresent God who holds a two-edged sword in his mouth, stars in his hand, and flames of fire in his eyes? The human emperor may be able to kill them, but they serve a God who was dead and is alive forevermore, and holds the power of resurrection. Strengthened by the vision of the greater reality of God's kingdom, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the church did not die. Rather, many of its members were so bold as to proclaim the glory of God's kingdom, even when killed as martyrs for the faith, the church did not fail, but has survived and proclaimed the gospel for these 2,000 years by the grace of God. The reality of God's kingdom is still evident today. I so often want to see evidence of God through grand miracles which display his power, like those described in the Old Testament, the creation, the flood, crossing of the Red Sea, fire on Mount Carmel, and so many others. However, one of the first testimonies that really expanded my vision of the reality of God's kingdom 
came from a rather ordinary man who had a loving wife and four daughters. This man was part of a family scene that was all too common a few years ago in America. The man did not go to church. He was not involved in religious concerns. His wife, however, was a committed believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And every week she gathered up their children, took them to church, and left the man behind. Each week she prayed her husband would come to know Jesus and join her at church. She never nagged. She never pushed. In fact, she served her husband graciously in every way. Meanwhile, she prayed and longed for his change of heart. He was not necessarily a cruel man, yet he appeared gruff and distant. He seemed to care mostly for his own, and his sense of reserve almost frightened others away. But one day a preacher came to this man's home and introduced the man to Jesus Christ and talked to him about God's kingdom. Miraculously, through the work of the Holy Spirit, the wife's prayers were answered. The man not only attended church with his family, he became a leader in the congregation. He served as a greeter, an usher, and even chairman of the board. When the church went through very difficult times, he maintained a stable ministry of lay leadership when so many others abandoned the congregation. And that church is now thriving with growth in the context of serving the Lord. It may have been enough for me just to hear that testimony and believe in the reality of God's kingdom and its power to change lives. However, the real impact of that story came to me when it touched my own life. The preacher in the story was my father. And when I was 14 years old, that preacher died. At that time, the man in the story who had come to know Christ stepped in and in many significant ways took on the role of my father. He taught me to drive a car, took me to visit his workplace, he played with my friends and me, fed me at his table, and always welcomed me into his home. At a time of crisis when my reality was diminished by the pain of loss and death, when my heart cried, is this all there is to reality? The greater reality of God's kingdom came in the form of a caring Christian man transformed by the grace of God. As the church faces this 21st century, we must realize there's more to reality than the problems which oppress us, the stresses that restrict us, or the violence that frightens us. We live as citizens of God's kingdom. We pray, we meditate on his word, we worship the Lord, practice devotions daily, help our neighbor in need, even wake up singing in the morning. A pastor friend of mine encourages his congregation to set the tone for each day by starting the morning with song. These are just small illustrations of how we practice the greater reality of God's kingdom, knowing that ultimately God's realm has already secured eternal victory over sin and death. Nothing can prevent us from living in the present reality of the kingdom of God and fulfilling the call which God has placed on our lives.
The traumas around us are not all that exists. God's kingdom is real in the world today, now, in the present. We must expand our vision and see this greater reality and truth of God. That's the exhortation that comes from the book of Revelation. Let's grasp it. Let it sink into our hearts. Most of all, let's practice its existence. Be inspired. Be encouraged. Serve the Lord without fear or despair, for God's kingdom is real, and it's greater than any concern in the universe. Perhaps you need to regain your view of the reality of God's kingdom and your place in it as God's servant. So look and see the truth of God's rule in the world. Let us commit ourselves fully to Christ and living in God's kingdom. song we're going to sing is a prayer. It's a prayer to help us make that vision clear. So would you stand and let's sing together.
Our Lord, consume us with the vision of your truth and your kingdom. Take us forth as your instruments empowered by your spirit. In Jesus' name.